This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Violet Ramis Steele discusses her new memoir, Ghostbusters Daughter, Life with My Dad, Harold Ramis. Then PW senior writer Andrew Albanese previews ALA. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD Bookscan. Joining me is my co-host, Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. What's happening on the nonfiction end, Mark? Well, we've got a new number one. This is uh, by Newt Gingrich, uh, Trump's America, the truth about our nation's great comeback. Uh, we say here, though, Trump critics might learn about some of the administration's accomplishments from the book. The author's bias indicates that this is clearly geared towards supporters. We say that in, in this book, you know, he takes a look at his first year in office. Uh, this is Newt Gingrich, of course, the former Speaker of the House and Republican presidential candidate. And he argues that achievements of the young administration have lar- largely been all overshadowed by the antics of a biased media and a frenzied opposition. Uh, next, uh, we, we turn to Obama, the world as it is. A Memoir of the Obama White House by Ben Rhodes, uh, who's the author of Without Precedent. And uh, this book, to say many frustrations and a few victories emerge in the sometimes hopeful, often disillusioned memoir of foreign policy in the Obama administration. Uh, moving along to number 10, we have to go to another president. Uh, Lincoln's Last Trial, the murder case that propelled him to the presidency by Dan Abrams. Don't have a review of that. So we are going to move on to, and this is kind of interesting, The Sun Does Shine, How I Found Life and Freedom on Death Row. We gave it a star review. This is Anthony Ray Hinton. And this is both at number 11 and at number 18. At number 11, it's an Oprah pick, and so that pick goes at number 11, and uh, 18 is the conventional publishing, so without the Oprah uh, imprint on it. We say in this intense memoir, Hinton recounts his three-decade nightmare, waiting execution for crimes he didn't commit. Uh, This was back in 1985. Uh, Hinton was freed from prison in 2015 and now works as a motivational speaker. His life is one of inspiration, which he wonderfully relays here in bitingly honest prose. Uh, and then at number 14, uh, as we have been seeing before, cookbooks. This is the Whole Smith's Good Food Cookbook, Delicious Real Food Recipes for All Year Long by Michelle Smith. Uh, she's a Whole Smith blogger, and this is her first cookbook. And uh, Smith is the Whole Smith blogger. And here she, she incorporates both the Whole30, Paleo, Vegan, Vegetarian, all of them, to give readers plenty of options here. Uh, we say in a review, the health-minded home cooks who aren't adhering to a strict dietary regimen will find new dishes to incorporate into regular rotation. Then number 19, the five-day weekend freedom to make your life and work rich with purpose uh, by Nick Halleck. We don't have a review of that, but um, that's one of the self-help titles we have. And actually, I think that's all we have on nonfiction. 
There's a whole lot on the fiction oh. side as well. Um, we also have a new number one, which is The President is Missing by Bill Clinton and James Patterson, sold over 147,000 units, according to NPD Bookscan, and that's just in hardcover. I'm sure uh, there there will wow. be similar high sales uh, once there's a digital edition. And uh, I I think Bill Clinton is probably sitting there looking at the bestseller list and having a little chuckle that he outsold Newt Gingrich today. And uh, so this is their uh, their thriller. Uh, we gave it a starred review so that former President Clinton and bestseller Patterson deliver a page-turning thriller that rivals the best work of such genre titans as Brad Meltzer and Vince Flynn. Uh, the authors keep the suspense high, and uh, fans of the TV series 24 and the movie Air Force One will be riveted. So that's uh, definitely one to pick up if you're a thriller fan. Um, and number five, Briefcases by Jim Butcher. Uh, we said this entertaining collection assembles 11 reprints and one brand new novella all set in the world of Butcher's popular Chicago-based wizard P.I., Harry Dresden. Um, Butcher is uh, credited with being one of the founders of sort of what we consider the urban fantasy genre today, uh, or one of the people who really brought it into this noir-influenced uh, magical detection space um, and... Uh, it's been a long time since a new Harry Dresden novel. Uh, the last one came out in 2014. So this is a little bit of uh, a way of keeping fans going and uh, helping to tide them over as Butcher continues working on the next novel. Uh, moving down the list at number seven, There, There by Tommy Orange. We gave this a star. It said Orange's commanding debut chronicles contemporary Native Americans in Oakland, California, as their lives collide in the days leading up to the city's inaugural Big Oakland powwow. And he introduces 12 characters with plot lines hinging on things like 3D printed handguns and VR controlled drones. And uh, there's also a tie in with uh, Alcatraz Island. Uh, there's a lot happening in this um, very place centric story. Uh, we say that the propulsion of both the overall narrative and its players are breathtaking as Orange unpacks how decisions of the past mold the present, resulting in a haunting and gripping stories. That sounds definitely like one to pick up. Just below it, number eight, Turbulence by Stuart Woods. Uh, the approach of Hurricane Irma raises the tension early in bestseller Woods' 46th novel featuring lawyer Stone Barrington. Uh, Stone and friends, including the Secretary of State, hunker down at his house in Key West, Florida. And uh, we say that uh, the book's principal villain is barely seen and has a minimal backstory, so some readers may feel cheated by that despite the concluding fireworks. And a little below that at number 10, Us Against You by Frederick Backman. Uh, this is translated from Swedish. Nice to see translated works hitting the bestseller list. And uh, we say that Backman returns to the hockey-obsessed village of his previous novel, Bear Town, to chronicle the passion, violence, resilience, and humanity of the people who live there in this engrossing tale of small-town Swedish life. And the book is narrated by a collective we, uh, which is uh, an interesting approach. I haven't seen that very much. I think the last person who did it was uh, Karen Joy Fowler. And uh, we say that Backman's excellent novel has an atmosphere of both Scandinavian folktale and Greek tragedy. And I just finished reading that last night. How was it? 
it was really good. I read his uh, the first one, Bear Town. I'm one of the uh, uh, Bachman readers who did not read A Man Called Ove, which was his, his original bestseller. But it was the hockey angle that of Bear Town that brought me in. And um, and and what I what I enjoy about this book were the the complexities of of life, and and that that he brought into it. And it's not just about hockey by any means. Uh, it's about town life. It's about um, really about individuals and, and trying to 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 live in a small town, in a small town. So anyway, good. Well, that sounds great. Definitely, uh, like it lives up to the hype. Yeah, definitely. Uh, just below that, at number 11, Something in the Water by Catherine Stedman. And uh, in this novel, One Minute London Newlyweds, Erin uh, and Mark are enjoying a honeymoon to die for. And the next, they're being sucked into a maelstrom that might actually get them killed uh, as they discover, while they're scuba diving, a locked canvas duffel bag. And uh, once they start down the slippery slope, of uh, making use of the bag's contents, uh, the threats and increasingly bad decisions accelerate. We say that not all of the plot gambles prove equally successful, but some daring choices mark Stedman as a newcomer worth watching. And uh, then just below that, When Life Gives You Lululemons by uh, Lauren Weisberger. This is the third Devil Wears Prada book. And uh, this one stars uh, Emily Charlton, who is the first assistant to the famous Miranda Priestly. And she's now a highly successful image consultant. Uh, we don't have a review of this one, but uh, I'm sure that fans of the uh, the first two books will eagerly pick it up. And finally, down at number 19, Florida by Lauren Groff. Uh, we say that ferocious weather and self-destructive impulses plague the characters in this assured collection, the first from Groff since 2009's Delicate Edible Birds. Uh, so this is a short story collection. Um, I don't remember the last time we had two of those on the bestseller list. Really nice to see that. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of short fiction, and it's great to see it getting some love. Yeah, definitely. And that's what's happening on the Hardcover Fiction List. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Violet Raymond Steele tells us about growing up with the Ghostbusters. We'll be right back. I'm Mark Oshiro, author of Anger is a Gift, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Violet Ramis Steele on the line. Her new book is Ghostbusters Daughter, Life with My Dad, Harold Ramis. Violet, I'm so glad you could join us. I'm so glad to be here. This is a family memoir. Obviously, as the title indicates, it has your father at the center of it. And the title comes from one of his most popular films, Ghostbusters. And you weren't yet a teen when that came out. What was that like for you when he was sort of suddenly famous? Yeah, um, it was 1984. So I was seven years old. I was in third grade. And um, it was a great year for me socially. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Um yeah, it was really an exciting time. I mean, it was sort of the first movie he'd ever done that um, people my age were allowed to watch. <laughs> so all of a sudden, my peers were really excited when he would come to pick me up from school. And he was always really happy to sit and talk to people about the movie and special effects. And, you know, it really was the first time I sort of saw um, his popularity among the broader audience. So the, the fame didn't go to his head. It didn't, it didn't. Um, 
he was from Chicago, so he sort of always maintained uh, a very grounded Midwestern sense of, of self. Um, but he also really loved being recognized and loved talking about his work and his thought process and his belief systems. And so, you know, he was he was a very uh, human mix of grandiose and humble. <laughs> So as you go back to your father's early uh, life and career, uh, such as his you know, editing jokes at Playboy and collaborating with National Lampoon, how did he um, take us a little bit uh, to, to your father's history and early career path? Um, like I said, he grew up in Chicago, and then he went to college at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, that's where he met my mom. He was in a fraternity there. Um, he sort of had a, a pre-animal house, animal house experience. And then after he graduated, he worked some odd jobs. He was a cab driver. He uh, worked at a mental hospital. He um, was a substitute teacher. And then he got involved in Second City in Chicago. And that was sort of his first post-college taste of the theater life. And he really loved it. Um, the lessons that he learned there sort of informed the rest of his career. Um, you know, work from the top of your intelligence and always focus on making the other like other guy look good. <laughs> um, and from Second City, it was sort of a very natural progression. Uh, he was also working at Playboy at the time, and then he went to the National Lampoon Radio Hour and then to SCTV and then Animal House. It was a very fortuitous path. Did any of his Second City buddies come and hang out at your house? Like, what what was that like <laughs> for you? They all did. Um, there was not a lot of division between the home life and the work life. So, you know, Brian Doyle Murray and Bill Murray, um, Joe Flaherty, all of the SCTV people, Andrea Martin, John Candy, Catherine O'Hara, Eugene Levy. I mean, these were the people that I sort of grew up with. Um, and it was, you know, as you can imagine, very funny. Um, and most of these people, you know, we're sort of living a wild life at the time. So it was kind of a big circus-like atmosphere. And you said most of these people were funny. I mean, uh, uh, was your father funny at home as well as on screen and and maybe in his own writing? He was. I mean, it's not like he he was doing stand-up all the time. Um, But he had a funny way of looking at the world. Um, He's called it, or he used to refer back to the absurd child syndrome where you just sort of have to laugh once you realize all of the craziness that's going on in the world. And so he, you know, he was very thoughtful. He liked big ideas and philosophy, psychology, history. But, you know, he liked to laugh at sort of jokes, too. <laughs> so when once uh, Ghostbusters came out and your peers all suddenly realized who your dad was, did everybody want to come and hang out at your house? Um, they did. I mean... <laughs> He he also was, was good about sort of going to his audience. So, um, you know, he just liked to be out in the world and was always available to talk about stuff. But, yeah, there was probably some angling to get in uh, for a play date. <laughs> and, and were you enjoying all of this? Was it, like, fun for you? Was it stressful? How What was your experience of this? Um, it was, it was, I mean, it just was normal life, um, mm. as odd as that may sound. People always have asked me, you know, what's it like to have a famous father growing up? And and he was really just my dad. I didn't um, think of it as, you know, some spectacular thing that was doing that he was doing. It was his job. 
Um, had he been a plumber or an accountant, you know, I probably would have been equally unenthusiastic about it. Um, but yeah, he, he was always, you know, very down to earth. So I didn't really think of it as sort of a very glamorous thing, but he took me with him on all his, all his, you know, work trips and on location on the set. Um, so I really got to see the behind the scenes and it just wasn't as romantic as everyone else seemed to think it was. So you you do write at one point we 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 referred in our review that uh, that he had a relaxed approach to parenting with um you know he open recreational drug use as well as an open marriage uh, arrangement with your mother I think that was maybe when you were a little bit older. Um, it was you know my parents uh, split up when I was about eight years old nine years old. Um, I I wasn't so aware certainly of the inner workings of their marriage as a kid. It was later that I understood and talked to both of them about sort of what had happened. Um, the drug use, yes. I mean, he, he smoked pot in front of me all the time. Um, it was a different time, I guess. Um, and, you know, it, it made him sort of a very uh, relaxed, enthusiastic parent in a certain way. And it sounds like he was very nurturing. Um, what, what was he like as a parent? What was the relationship like between the two of you over the years? He was very nurturing and he was, you know, he was just really always present and there for me. Um, so even though sort of our outer life may have seemed very chaotic, he was really a constant grounding presence. Um, he seemed to really enjoy me and, you know, my little childhood creative <laughs> explorations. Um, you know, he liked to show me the world. He was, he was a seeker and he was a great teacher. So he really just sort of, took me on as his little sidekick, and we were a great team. Tell us about some of those creative explorations that the two of you maybe <laughs> collaborated on. Yeah, I mean, we always enjoyed seeing movies together. Um, we would rent videos, you know, for the weekend, and I would sort of, you know, act out parts of the movies we were watching. Um, and he, you know, he loved to play guitar and sing, so we used to sing together a lot. I mean... You know, I don't know if it was because he was immature at that time, too, but he really was not um, hesitant to get down on my level and sort of go into the world of a child. So I want to talk a little bit about the, the writing of the book. At what point did you decide that you either wanted to write this or, or could write this? Um, well, he and I actually had talked about writing a book together about parenting. Um, existential parenting, we called it. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, he uh, got sick and passed away before we were able to do that. So after he died, um, there was just this huge sort of outpouring of of love and grief and people really wanting more of him. Um, I had sort of started writing down all my memories and the lessons he taught me, not because I thought about writing a book, but because I just didn't want to forget anything. Um, so those two things sort of dovetailed and I thought, well, maybe I can share this with people and maybe they would really feel comforted and, and sort of buoyed by it. And I, I decided that I wanted to give that to them. It's a great theme, existential parenting. What were some of the, you just mentioned, some of the lessons you learned from him, or what, what wisdom did he impart on you? Um, I mean, one of the most important themes in the book and, and in my life has been, you know, that life is messy. That was something that he sort of 
um, imprinted on me very early on that I shouldn't expect anything to be perfect or easy and that nothing is black and white. So it was really about embracing the ambiguity and challenges in life and, and learning from them and continuing to grow as a person and, and be your best self. So you've uh, had this book out in the world for about a week now, and uh, you've had some time to get out there and talk to people who are reading it. Do you feel like you've uh, done what you set out to do to to scratch that itch that people had for for more about your father? Um, I do. I mean, I really i I love the way the book turned out. I love everyone in it. Um, I love that it sort of brought me closer to my dad in a way after his after his death. And people seem to really um, be getting a lot out of it. I mean. They say they laughed, they cried, they learned something, and that kind of seems like the best I could hope for. What was it like for you writing it and and reliving those memories? Um, it was it was actually very painless in a way. Um, you know, we had always talked about things as they were happening. Um, we dealt with issues as they arose, so there wasn't a lot of unresolved feelings around any of this. Um, I didn't, there were no surprises. I just felt like it was great for me to sort of uh, immerse myself in him and be able to connect with him in this way. And I liked, you know, synthesizing all of the information into sort of one sweeping narrative. (laughs) And I I imagine you you would have done... uh gone back to maybe watch old movies or, or, or even maybe read some of his old jokes in, in Playboy or his skits in National mm-hmm. Lampoon's Vacation. Uh, what was that like? What was your research process for this? Um, I, I watched the movies. I read a lot of his interviews. Um, luckily, my mom was sort of an obsessive documenter of our lives, so there were a lot of pictures and home movies and letters that he had written, um, and and that was great, you know, in terms of finding all this rich material for the book, but it also was such a comfort that even though he was gone, he had left a lot of himself behind. Um, and I, you know, I love all those movies. Um, there are, you know, some questionable parts of some of the classics, but it was great to uh, to revisit them from this point of view. Questionable parts in what way? Um, well, I mean, if you watch Animal House or Caddyshack, I mean, certainly the depiction of women, of um, people of color, I mean, it's not even about political correctness. They just are not that funny <laughs> um, and, and stereotypical. And, you know, I think some of that was before the the concept of punching up and punching down had had really been understood. So, you know, I think he went for some gags that he would not have definitely gone for later on as he matured as a person. One of the things you write about is uh, when he was on the set of National Lampoon's Vacation, he didn't like the ending and he actually apologized to the actors. What, what was that all about? <laughs> um, they tried a, a few different endings, I believe. Um, as it is now, they Chevy Chase character Clark Griswold goes and gets a BB gun and holds a security guard hostage, and they ride the rides, and then Roy Wally shows up at the end with the police, but it's all okay. Um, I think they had one 
version where they went to Roy Wally's house and tried to hold him hostage. I think they just sort of didn't know how to wrap it up. The, the film really was about the journey and not so much about the destination. But here they were at the ending and they weren't quite sure what to do. Hmm. What in, in, in going back and maybe watching the movies uh, or, or reading stuff from your father, what, what was it that surprised you most? Was there anything? Um, there really wasn't. I mean, he talked about his work a lot and especially the early films, you know, people loved hearing about the making of Caddyshack and the processes they went through, you know, and Ghostbusters. Um, so, so much of this was just in my mind already from hearing him talk about it. Um, yeah, it was more just sort of tracing the arc of his career and looking at things really in hindsight as, as a whole body of work and seeing his evolution and progression over time. But there weren't any surprises. It was more just like, oh, now I see sort of how these things fit together. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Violet Ramis Steele, author of Ghostbusters Daughter, Life with My Dad, Harold Ramis. When you were researching, did you go back and talk to his old friends? I didn't. Um, I I wasn't setting out to write a biography. I make no claims to objectivity. Um, I really just wanted to tell sort of my story of him. Um, and that was good because I didn't need to get anyone else's um, approval, really. I mean, I'm just telling my own story. Um, and I, I was concerned about having other voices in my head as I wrote. Um, and I, I certainly had plenty of material to pull from. Um, we spent a lot of time together. We were always very close. And he just was so generous with his thoughts, with his insight, information and, and support. So um, I didn't feel like I needed to go outside of that. So your uh, your official biography says, Formerly a teacher and social worker, Violet is now a full-time writer and disgruntled homemaker, and you live with your husband <laughs> and six children. Um, that's, a, that's a lot of children. <laughs> it's a lot. Three are my children, and I have three stepchildren who are with us on the weekends. So it's, it's, um, it's a bit of a madhouse. But again, I mean, I think kids sort of enjoy the chaos and it leaves everybody room to uh to be themselves and and be interacting with people and and learning from each other so yeah the disgruntled part i mean can you imagine (laughs) (laughs) but uh but yeah i mean it's it's an adventure and i just try to sort of bring the same uh, improvisational spirit that my dad did to everything well i was gonna say six six children sounds like a comedy troupe so i was wondering if you uh <laughs> if you get to apply any lessons that you learned from your father sort of directly or indirectly to to managing that chaos or or steering it in positive directions yeah i mean i think that again his his sort of overarching philosophy was just about embracing the chaos so I don't I try to manage it as little as possible 
um, because that just seems like an exercise in frustration for everyone at the end of the day. But yeah, I mean, certainly he um, sort of is channeled through me and just trying to enjoy and accept each of the kids for who they are um, and really let them discover that. I mean, I'm grateful that I had sort of an unconventional upbringing where there weren't a lot of rules, but also the, the world wasn't kept from me. Uh, there wasn't a lot of censoring or, or concern about what was appropriate or not. Um, and so, you know, it's not the same time and I'm certainly, I'm not giving them the same upbringing that I had, but I, I do try to let them sort of do their own thing. I want to go back a little bit to Ghostbusters. Looking back on Ghostbusters, what do you, what do you feel now? Um, I think it's, I mean, I, I love how it really has endured as sort of this American classic. Um, I didn't really appreciate the movie at the time. I was a little bit, you know, blase about it all. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, rewatching it with my kids, you know, I, I enjoy it in a whole different way. And I just really love the community that has grown up around this movie. Um, the fact that there are sort of, um, groups of ghost heads in cities all over the world who get together and get suited up and, um, do community service or march in a, you know, a pride parade. Like that's a pretty great legacy to leave behind. What, what did you think of the uh, the the recent movie? I thought it was I thought it was fine. I, I I don't. It was hard to understand why people had such a problem with it. Um, I think we're all nostalgic for the past, and it's nice to hold on to those things from our youth. But I don't know why that needs to preclude someone else being inspired and creating something from it. Um, so that was you know, confusing and, and unpleasant in terms of just the sort of sexism um, and territorialism <laughs> that hmm. that popped up around it. Um, you know, it's a different time and this time deserves its own Ghostbusters and I think there's room for many more. So what just do you think about your father that he was able to create so many movies that have resonated in, you know, throughout our culture, such as Animal House, such as Stripes, I remember that, Ghostbusters, and, and so many others? Um, I think he was just very interested in sort of, um, in looking at the trends and, and social mores of the time. Um, I mean, he called his early films institutional comedies. And I think, you know, he was a rebel in his own way. I mean, a child of the, the 60s. Um, coming of age in the late sixties. And, and that really influenced him. And I think he wanted to, um, do something to sort of have an impact on the culture, but he wasn't running for office or going out and getting arrested. So this was sort of his way of, of contributing, um, maybe a slightly more subversive viewpoint to the, to the media at the time. A couple of times you've mentioned philosophy, and I, I think that probably came out the most clearly in Groundhog Day. But tell us a little bit about that that philosophy, those those uh, thoughtful underpinnings of the comedy. Yeah, um, well, he was raised Jewish um, and then sort of embraced Buddhism uh, later in his life. Um, but he was, you know, very curious about all sort of belief systems, um, he really loved reading about history. He loved existential psychology and psychology in general. Um, you know, he was curious about how people worked and what their motivations were um, to do wonderful things and also to do horrible things. 
um, that was his way of sort of making sense of the world. So in Groundhog Day, I think, you know, what's so incredible about it is that it really resonated with so many different groups. Um, Buddhists thought it was a Buddhist movie. Jewish people thought it was a Jewish movie. Um, psychologists thought it was a very psychological movie. And so I, I think somehow he sort of tapped into something um, that really made sense to everybody and made them feel something and laugh. And, um, you know, Bill Murray is so great in that. And, you know, he was very proud of Groundhog Day. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I, f- I feel like it's um, it's a different tone from a lot of the sort of more more raucous comedy. Though I will say that also, my mm-hmm. f- all of my favorite moments in his movies are those subtle ones. Um, yeah, I mean, he there were there were big things going on, and then there were little things going on, and so when you watch them over and over, I, I think that's really great because you can see something that you never saw before, even after ten or fifteen or twenty or 30, 50 times of watching it, um, he, he really tried to hit it on all levels, and I think he was successful in that. So many of his movies starred Bill Murray, and I know also Chevy Chase. Uh, what was what was your father's and uh, Bill Murray's relationship? Was it friendship, or was it strictly professional? What was it like? Um, they met initially through Bill's older brother, Brian Doyle Murray, who was part of the Second City troupe that my dad was in. Um, Bill was a few years younger than them. And, you know, I think as soon as he came on the scene, everybody knew that he was something special. I mean, he's a very unpredictable uh, material person and that, that keeps things real interesting. Um, you know, they worked together for a long time. They were friends. Um, Bill is, you know, he's an enigma. So I think ultimately they just needed a break from each other and maybe they needed to pursue their own directions and their work. Um, they, so they, they didn't speak for over 20 years um, after Groundhog Day, but, you know, at the end of my dad's life, Bill did come and they sort of made their peace. So, you know, I appreciate that. He's my godfather, actually. So <laughs> um, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. expecting someday for him to sort of come back and, and make up for all these lost years. <laughs> See, I, I didn't realize that Bill Murray was your godfather. What what was that relationship like for you? Did the two of you have a sort of separate personal relationship? We we didn't. I mean, he was definitely a big part of my childhood. He would sort of, you know, come in and pick me up and carry me around like a sack of potatoes. Um, and certainly on the films that he and my dad did together, you know, he was always very charming and wonderful. But we didn't have a, a separate close relationship, um, but, you know, again, uh, he, he keeps us guessing all the time, so we'll see what happens. It's not too late. <laughs> and what about Chevy Chase? Yeah, I mean, Chevy Chase, I don't remember as much socially. I think, um, you know, during vacation, certainly, and Caddyshack, he was had pictures of, of us together, and he was always a very funny um you know, he he was the guy that was doing the the pratfall or acting very silly, um, and I of course loved that as a child. Um, they didn't stay particularly close uh, throughout my dad's life, but they always you know had a good relationship and and spoke very highly of each other. And what about your father and your mother? What was the relationship like? What was that like for you, especially during the divorce? Um, I mean. At the time, it all seemed pretty okay. Um, they had a very amicable split, and 
you know, they always remained close friends. Um, I think when they were married, I, I didn't see a lot of them together. I think they um, had pretty separate lives by the time I was born, or maybe they were just tag team parenting, so I didn't get a lot of them together. Um, you know, my mom is a very unusual person. She's an artist. She really sort of lives by her own rules. And I think my dad, you know, liked that she sort of pushed him out of the box on things. Um, and, you know, I mean, they had all these wonderful adventures together, traveling and, you know, sort of enjoying the, the success of my dad's early career. And, um, you know, I think their relationship ultimately didn't work out, whatever that means, but it did because they had a great kid, me, <laughs> and, um, and they really did remain close forever with a lot of respect and affection for each other. I love that perspective that that uh, people tend to think of relationships that end as not successful, but that's not the only measure of success. No. And, you know, I think it's been a really great lesson for me in terms of my own family. Um, You know, I have two kids with my previous partner and and now I'm married and we have a child together. And um, obviously I have three stepchildren. So you know, it's a mess too, but it's okay because we all talk about what's going on. We really care about each other and sort of just are here to help each other through it. But um, it's nice that I didn't ever feel like I had to follow a certain traditional path of, of marriage and family. It sounds like that, that is in almost, um, that is almost a, a family tradition for you is, yeah. uh, is to be unconventional. <laughs> right, Exactly. We've been talking with Violet Ramis-Steele, and you can find her book, Ghostbusters Daughter, in stores right now. Violet, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was really great talking to you both. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rutella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese talks about the upcoming ALA, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Tessa Fontaine, the author of The Electric Woman, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly, editors and contributors, and today our PW senior writer, Andrew Albanese, is here to tell us all about ALA. Hello, Andrew. Hey there, Mark. Hello, Rose. Hello. It's very nice to have you joining us. It's been a little while. Um, so tell us all about the upcoming ALA. Does it seem like we're talking about library conferences quite a lot like this year? Like all the time. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a reason for that. This is the year that every year, every other year, there's a public library association conference. And so there's been a lot of library conferences this year. It's one of those years. Um, but this year in June, uh, next week, as a matter of fact, we'll be in New Orleans for the ALA annual conference. Always a great city to visit. Very nice. Um and I'll say this right off the top about this show is that New Orleans and the library community have a very special bond. And this goes back to Katrina and the library community mm-hmm. was the first group to come back to New Orleans in 2006. The, right away, they kept their commitment to have their show there mm-hmm. and they came back to New Orleans while the city was rebuilding, brought 20,000 librarians spending dollars pitching in to help. They built a library. They did all kinds of great, of great stuff there. And I've been back a couple of times since with the library community for a couple of other meetings, and the people of New Orleans have not forgotten. They they greet the library community with 
open arms. That's uh, lovely. There's a mutual love thing going on there between the library community and the city of New Orleans. Uh, so just for that alone, I think this is going to be worth it. Um, that said, some A-list names on the program this year. Chief among them, uh, former First Lady Michelle Obama is going to be uh, keynoting the the first, uh, the opening general session at ALA this year. So that should be quite a newsworthy event. Well, that sounds very exciting. I, I feel like um, past past presidents and uh, their spouses are showing up all over the place at literary events lately. Uh, we, had, <laughs> we had Bill Clinton at Book Expo. Slightly less fraught, I think, with Michelle Obama in New Orleans than, than Bill Clinton. <laughs> I think she's going to do a better job handling yeah. the interviews anyway. Um, one thing I will point out about she, she Michelle is going to be speaking on stage with uh, Carla Hayden, who, of course, is the librarian of Congress that mm-hmm. Barack Obama uh, appointed in 2016. And Carla Hayden has done a f- fantastic job at the Library of Congress. She really has uh, brought a lot of energy. Uh, she's really moving the organization forward, and she's been very visible in the library community, unlike her predecessor, James Billington, who was in the job for 27 years and, you know, by all accounts, had not really been doing much. The library had kind of stagnated on his watch. But I'm a little nervous about what's going to happen with Carla Hayden on stage with Michelle Obama, because we're not living in normal times. Right. We've had this conversation before, right? And anything that seems to have the name Obama near it or attached to it seems to draw the ire of the current administration uh, and President Trump. And I'm a little nervous that Carla Hayden has relatively been left alone right now. She has not drawn the attention of, of our president now. And I'm just, I'm very nervous that putting her on stage with Michelle Obama and having a conversation even if it doesn't turn remotely political, uh, just the picture of the two of them together could somehow trigger, you know, the unwanted attention, shall we say, of President right. Trump. Right. Um, I hope that's just me feeling conspiracy minded in these conspiracy minded times and that nothing comes to pass. But it might have been better to have just, you know, the ALA president do the Q&A than Carla Hayden. So that's my one reservation about the program. Well, um, hopefully your fears are unfounded. Hopefully, yes. And uh, tell us about what else is slated to happen. Well, you know, I've always said, and I've probably said it on this show too, that the library community is is where all the action is. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can every issue that's going on in, in the culture at large, and in the publishing world, and in in the world of creation and content and arts, it's all encapsulated in, in public libraries. Uh, and that is very true if you look at what's on the professional program at this year's ALA. Um, in our P- in our preview in Publishers Weekly, which is on newsstands Monday and will be online uh, today, I believe, uh, later today, you can you can just see all of the issues that librarians are dealing with, and they sound a lot like the issues that we're all dealing with. Um, some of the programs deal with, uh, you know, how to handle immigrants and and uh, refugees in your community. There's a lot of uh, programs on race and race relations in the community. There's a lot of programs on um, how to reach children with disabilities. There's just, there's, it's just such a service oriented meeting and you can see where libraries are really putting in the effort to deal with a lot of the issues that are just bubbling up and are, are really foremost uh, in our communities across the country. 
That's, uh, I mean, it really is amazing. I mean, I, I've, even on Facebook, if uh, I, I see the, the, these uh, pop up, if, if there's a lot, you know, if you use the library, you know, please, you know, post it right now. But also about Michelle Obama, I mean, we, she also had, you know, she's got a book coming out in November, mm-hmm. which is, you know, which got a lot of, of uh, attention at BEA. Uh, and I think she's going to be getting it there as well. Absolutely. I, I mean, it's, you know, in addition, you've got, she's not the only A-lister, I will say, at this conference, too. There's Doris Kearns Goodwin who's going to be there. Um, there. She has a new book coming out as well. Uh, Viola Davis is going to be there. Sally Field. So there's some really big names there. But I really believe, I, I feel like this is Michelle Obama's real coming out for this book. I feel like this is her yeah. first big uh publicity move for this book which doesn't come out till november um i'm assuming we'll see copies of it shortly before then um and while we don't really know what's going to be in that book she she says the writing of it was deeply personal for her and i saw this in an interview where she said that she really goes back and reflects on her whole life and how she wound up where she did first lady of the united states um so i'm expecting just a fascinating conversation from her she's obviously a big supporter of libraries and the work that libraries do uh, I think it should be really energizing, especially as libraries face a little bit of uncertainty with the current administration in terms of funding issues. Uh, and more to the point, frankly, just sort of the values that the administration espouses are seem to be running head on with the, the values that the library community holds core. I think Michelle Obama is going to give everybody a, a little bounce in their step. Well, that sounds uh, very much worth looking forward to. And uh, is there anything in particular that you want to hit while you're there? I'd like to get a beignet and, and well, uh, yeah. <laughs> a cup of coffee at Cafe du Monde, if that's possible. Um, the main program is going to be terrific this year, but there is one of the things that I'm really interested in checking out this year is there's a, a, a group within the ALA, and I'll spare you the alphabet soup, the, Af- the acronym of the organization, but they're sort of taking over for where the digital content working group uh, left off when it comes to ebooks and digital content libraries. Now we haven't been talking about ebooks and libraries very much since 2015 end of 2014, because that's when the major publishers uh, finally allowed libraries to license ebooks and lend them. Right. But, and I predicted this back then and I wrote an editorial about how I felt like we were in a dangerous point because now the publishers have allowed libraries to, basically uh, lend their whole catalog, buy, license, and lend their whole catalogs, there's no impetus for them to keep moving forward and make the service better and make the service more relevant. And indeed, that's just what happened. We seem to have settled into this plateau of mediocrity when it comes to digital services. Publishers can say, hey, well, you know, we're letting you buy and lend the stuff, but it's not really addressing how the needs of the communities. Like I'll give you an example. I want to read James Comey's book, a higher loyalty. Um, I'm not particularly compelled to go buy it. And right now I am on a five month waiting list at the New York wow. public library to get one of a hundred digital copies that they're using to serve the entire community. And the reason is because those copies are expensive. Right. Um, a, a digital copy of a book for a library will run a library two to three times what the print price is. And they really, yes. And they expire. They have really? to be managed. Yes. So, so a library will spend 40, $45 on an ebook. And after one year's time, they have to relicense it if they want to keep lending it, whether or not it's been lent out 26 times or however many times it would take. So it's just a very fraught environment. And then there's the whole issue of Amazon. There's 
Audible, etc., all of its companies who, you know, you can't even, if you're a library, you can't get Audible content. You have to actually be an Audible subscriber. Amazon doesn't work with libraries. Amazon wants to be the library. And you have all this great original content that's being done for Audible and being done via Amazon that libraries are having a hard time collecting and sharing with their patrons. So we're just in this really... It's not getting the headlines anymore, but digital content, ebooks, and especially uh, audiobooks, uh, it's a huge issue for me. And uh, there's this new group that's going to be exploring issues and how to how to work on them going forward at ALA this year. Uh, so I'm going to sit in on that and see if see what's happening there. I think that's particularly important because we've been talking about the rise of audio as uh, a really strongly preferred medium for a lot of people. And if there's then all this audio content that people can only get by paying for it, that really creates a stratification in uh, who gets to enjoy these books and who does not. That's exactly right. And one of the things, I'll go even a step further with that. The audio market as it exists now was, in my opinion, built on libraries. Libraries were lending and doing a booming business with audio back when audio wasn't even, you know, publishers were barely paying attention to it. It was a small market for them. That's a real market for them now. I mean, we've been seeing these gaudy double digit growth rates for publishers and those growth rates have actually gotten us to the point where that money matters now to publishers. They're certainly paying attention to it. Um, so the, the cynic in me wants to say, now the publishers are paying attention to it. How are they going to screw it up for libraries? Uh, I think it was the, the, the audio publishers association recent report showed that like some 22% of, of downloads came through libraries. Like it's, it's, it's extraordinarily popular medium in libraries. Libraries can do a lot with publishers to sure. continue that boom. Um, we'll see what happens. We'll see if, uh, if that continues and we'll see how we end up dealing with the Amazon issue. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, telling us about all of this. It sounds like there's going to be a lot of news coming out of ALA, and maybe you can uh, come back and report on it. Yeah, I hope to, hope to survive it. You know, <laughs> New Orleans in June, it's always a fun city. It's always a hot city. Bring a fan. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. It's great to have you on the show. My pleasure. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albanese, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Amanda Stern, author of Little Panic, Dispatches from an Anxious Life. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 